Hey everyone, and welcome to Detoxicity. Whether this is your first time checking this podcast out or you're a regular listener, I'm glad you're here. I hope that you and yours are safe and healthy. And by the way, my name is Mike Joseph. Detoxicity is available on just about every podcast platform there is. And I hope that however you listen, you take a minute to subscribe and drop a rating and or a comment. If you feel the need to check me out on social media, you can go to facebook.com slash detoxpod, or you can follow me on Instagram at itsmikejoseph or on Twitter at tismikejoseph. There's also a detoxpod newsletter. You can find the link to sign up at tinyurl.com slash detoxpod. If all else fails, you can email me at detoxpod at gmail.com. Feel free to drop a line and make suggestions to provide constructive criticism. And also, don't hesitate to reach out should you yourself want to be on the podcast or if you know somebody who would be a good fit. In this episode, I'm speaking to Andrew Grossman. Andrew is a writer and a lawyer, originally from Kentucky, but now based, like many of my guests, in New York City. Andrew is also a part of the reason Detoxicity even exists, as he is a co-creator of the Facebook group Detoxifying Masculinity. This group, like this podcast, aims to amplify the conversation around being better men and ridding ourselves of the toxicity often imposed on us by social constructs and conditioning. Andrew and I have a typically wide-ranging discussion that covers subjective wokeness and premature woke syndrome, the Jewish versus white conundrum, and what makes one decide to become an attorney to begin with. And now for the main event, please welcome Andrew Grossman. All right. Hi, uh, my name is Andrew Grossman. I'm a writer and an attorney living in Queens, New York. Uh, I grew up in Kentucky, where I also went to college, and the culture didn't quite suit me, so I fled to the coast. I went to California for about a decade, and then found my home here in New York City. In addition to my professional practice, I help facilitate a men's group called Detoxifying Masculinity, which met monthly before the pandemic and now we're doing weekly zoom calls as we all struggle to find our way in this brave new world of ours Uh, so (laughs) that's who i am and a little about me so what possessed you or possessed is probably not the word i want to use what was the motivating factor that made you decide to help put this group together Well, I I wish I could tell you some great story about how I witnessed some injustice in the world and uh, I was moved to act, but that's not really how it happened. I've been been friends with and connected with uh, a lot of very active women who are working to help dismantle the kiriarchy. And it had come up a number of times that there was a real need for a men's group in the community where men can come together and talk about our common interests and our, our common desires and, and ha- how we fit into the effort to combat the patriarchy. And it was after one of those conversations, I said, you know, this is a resource that doesn't exist. It's something that would be easy to create. And I think there is an audience for it. And so I threw together a meetup with a couple of friends of mine, and it blossomed very quickly. And it's been going for about a year and a half now. Uh, We've met every month. We haven't missed any. Uh, And we've got somewhere between a a dozen and two dozen core members. And it's been really good. It's been very constructive. And I think it's added some value for the people who participate as well. What do you see as, is there a through line that goes from like each meeting to the next or have you seen any sort of common thread or or anything like that? Well, definitely. I I think uh, we spend a lot of time talking about 
what is masculinity and what, what, what is masculine culture? When we use that word, what do we mean? And what I've come to understand over the past couple of years is that anytime we talk about masculine this or feminine this, we're really describing a received culture. We're, we're not describing some inherent characteristic. The differences between men and women are, are very small. There, there are a few small physical differences, but when we talk about masculine culture, we're talking about a series of ideas that we've inherited and understanding what those ideas are and understanding what masculinity means, I think is, is a through line that goes through most of our conversations. So making it specific to you, what was your experience like growing up in terms of learned masculinity and how did you fit into all of that? Well, growing up, I, I think I was very fortunate in that I grew up with very liberal parents. They were always very progressive. They were always you know, teaching us uh, about equality and gender equality. But there's sometimes a disconnect between the words that you're receiving and what you're observing around you. And I grew up in a culture where to be a man was to be stoic, somebody who could not be moved to passion, somebody who sat on their emotions and was there to provide support, not to need support. Whereas women were the emotionally expressive and they were the caregivers. Uh, so there was always a little bit of a disconnect between what I was taught and what I was observing. And that tension is a part of what led me to realize I'm in the wrong place. I can't be in the middle of Kentucky. I need to be somewhere where, where the words and the actions match. I have to ask, and I think you're the second person that I've interviewed who is a Jewish person from Kentucky. What the hell was that like? <laughs> People ask that all the time. And really, the, the questions and the bafflement, they don't match my experience. I grew up in a Jewish community. Ah. I went to I went to the synagogue and, you know, we had the rivalry with a temple across town and I went to Sunday school and a Hebrew school. And I, I never really believed any of it. I'm personally an atheist, but I do enjoy the Jewish culture and I embrace my culture. But it, there are Jews in Kentucky, believe it or not, at least in Lexington, Kentucky, <laughs> go 10 miles in any direction. And I, I can't speak to that. What is what does a temple rivalry involve? I, I, I the visual i'm getting right now is probably 100% different <laughs> no it's it was more two religious institutions uh, competing over the scarce resource that resource being jews uh, <laughs> but butts in pews <laughs> so nothing like west side story at all no, no, none of that. I, I, in terms of the substance of the rivalry, the temple was reformed, so they would play music during the uh, Sabbath services, and the synagogue where I went was conservative, and they would never consider that. <laughs> so getting out of Kentucky was definitely a must for you, it feels like. Oh, absolutely, yes. I was much more at home, first in San Francisco, and now in New York, for sure. Excellent. So, I mean, what... Was there like exposure once you, well, I mean, from Kentucky to San Francisco, I would have to imagine is uh culture shock, even for the most liberal of Kentuckians. Oh, yes. I mean, not in the way you probably would think, though. I was expecting people to be very progressive. What I observed in California, and I, I still see to a lesser extent in New York, is a 
sort of a gotcha culture among progressives where there's a lot of purity tests and there's a lot of <laughs> tone policing and you can't use this word and this term is oppressive, so use something else. And, you know, it, it there's certainly a learning curve. There's a, a way to adjust and kind of understand, you know, maybe some of the things I'm saying I should say differently. And maybe some of the words I'm using are harmful to people. And I, it really took me an unreasonable amount of time to come to grips with that. But that seems like such an evolving, not only is it an evolving thing, but different people accept different verbiage differently. So how do you, and I, I say this as um, not quite a rhetorical question, but how do you sort of balance everyone's individual, like, policing of you in terms of, like, language and actions? Like, how do you manage all that and then sort of be true to yourself as well? Well, I, I think you have to use your own internal barometer to an extent. Um, you know, somebody told me that you know, sinister, you can't use the word sinister because that word, which uh, derives from the French word for left, is oppressive to left-handed people. <laughs> and well, no, this, there are people who really do believe that. And, you know, I, I respect their right to believe that. But I ran that through my own bullshit detector and decided, you know, no, no, that's, that's a really useful word. I'm going to continue employing that. Right before we uh, started recording, you and I were catching up and we talked about someone who believes Karen, referring to Karen as a type of person, is just as oppressive as the N-word. And and that's and that's nonsense. You know, that that's absolute nonsense. So you can't just take everybody's word for it. But I think what's incumbent on us is to really listen and think about what people are telling us when they're tone policing us. And that's hard because nobody likes to be criticized. Sure. Nobody likes to be told I'm acting sexist or I'm acting racist. Nobody wants to be called those things, but just the word itself triggers this defensive reaction. And I think we need to look beyond that and really listen to what they're saying. And that doesn't mean agreeing with them necessarily. Just listen to what they're saying and try to understand where they're coming from. You are, in the time that I've known you, you have proven yourself to be a very understanding person, more so than me, for sure. Because there are times when people say things and do things and I'm just like, you're full of shit. I don't need to deal with this. And, and you really try to get to the heart of why someone feels that way. Where did you, where did that come from? There's a quote from the book War and Peace that has really been a, a guidestone for me, which is to understand all is to forgive all. And I try to employ that as much as I can. I'm not always successful. That's a really hard thing to do. But to, to realize that if you understood everything about the context of what's happening or what's being said or how that person is acting, you may not agree with them, but you'd at least forgive them. You'd at least have that context to understand why. And I try really hard. And I, I sometimes give people too much benefit of the doubt in that way. It can come across as a little bit gullible. But I do think that we owe it to each other to try our best to be understanding to the extent we can. And not everybody has the, the spoons for that. But I'm, I come from a place of a lot of privilege. So if I can't be more patient, who can? Fair. Yeah, I, I don't find you I don't think you're gullible at all I think you're nice and I what am I trying to say here I appreciate I don't know but keep saying no I like where you're going I appreciate and (laughs) I appreciate and respect your niceness and your patience I just you know like you said don't have the stones for that 
I am one of those life is short. And if I don't have to deal with this, I'm not going to deal with this. So, you know, forget you kind of people. Like my, yeah, but that's my, not, but that's not entirely accurate because what, what, from my observations of you, you draw those lines for people. You tell people where your boundaries are. And I, I think where you've been less forgiving maybe than I would be, it's when people are crossing a boundary you've already expressed to them or that they really ought to know. And I, I don't think it's the same thing. I, I, it's not that you're observing behavior and writing people off out of the blue. You're, you're drawing those boundaries. And I think that's, that's a reasonable thing to do. Okay. Yeah. I mean, this is just kind of, I mean, I, I, I curious how you see that. And I, I don't know. I just, uh, sometimes I talk to you or I read stuff you post. I'm just like, Andrew's a very understanding person. And I, I, there's a part of me that wishes that I was like that, but there's another bigger part of me that's just like, oh yeah, I'm never going to be like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it, it, it honestly, it more gets pointed out to me in the in the negative, where it's I can't believe you still talk to fill in the blank, or I, I can't believe you invited that person. Do you know what they did? Uh, it, it's much more often called to my attention where it's seen as a shortcoming, where I'm causing inadvertent harm to people by not drawing those lines and excluding people from my life. Sure. I get that. Yeah. I just, I, I, I would love to, I mean, I guess part of where that does come from is the fact that you are, you know, you are privileged to a certain extent, like you are a straight white man. Well, I'm, I'm white in a bull economy. I'm Jewish. Right. Yes. White, not- white, but we're, we're white when the economy is good. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's another interesting thing is that, you know, I mean, you go to certain parts of this country and you are not white. Right. Well, I'm other. It's, it doesn't, I don't think the color is as important as just being othered. Right. And, you know, it, when it comes to privilege, I, I'm a big believer in the kiriarchy. I think I'm privileged in a lot of ways. I'm not privileged in others. You know, I, I'll never have the privilege of somebody with a huge fortune. And, and that's okay. You know, not everybody, you're not going to have every privilege in life. I'm not, I don't have the privilege of somebody with, you know, many doctorate degrees and a, a significantly higher education. But as, as a lawyer, I have a lot of privilege over a lot of people in a lot of other professions. And I, I think one of the devilish things is to realize that privilege isn't dirty. You know, there's nothing wrong with having privilege. You just no. need to, it, it's like a hair color. It's a thing you have or you don't have and you can lose or you can gain and you just need to be aware of it because when it comes to carving out your own, your own personal morality, your own personal ethics, you need to be aware of your privilege and you need to be aware of where you have it and where you don't because in my view, a lot of your obligations to other people are dictated by what privileges you have. Yeah. Can you expand on that further? I, I think that's a really great point. Sure. Well, uh, and I, I know that you're familiar with white nonsense roundup, which, <laughs> which I, and for, for people who don't know, it's, it's a group of white people who can be tagged on Facebook to respond when there's some racism going on so that the onus isn't on the black or brown people who are dealing with the bullshit to deal with it. You, you tag white nonsense roundup and they come in and they say, no, listen, what you're saying is inappropriate and here's why. And they deal with it. I think that leveraging your privilege 
in that specific way is one of the most healthy things we can do. It's one of the most direct ways we can attack the system. So as a man, I'm very interested in seeing men fight against sexism because I think we have that privilege and therefore we have that obligation collectively. And your personal mileage may vary. You know, not everybody is in a place where they can take on the haters. Um, but if you have the ability and you have the privilege, you, you should really consider stepping up. And when you see somebody talking down to a woman, intervene with them and say, listen, what the hell are you doing, man? You, know, you can't talk to people like this. Right. Uh, it, and when you hear sexist jokes, just saying, oh, come on, that's bullshit. Don't, real humor doesn't need to be oppressive. It really doesn't. The best humor isn't. So I, I think that's the way I, I view leveraging privilege and the obligations that your privilege imposes on you. If you have money, you should be helping people who don't have money, especially right now. And again, this, these are these ideals that I, I spend a lot of time thinking about and I, I try to live up to and I don't always succeed at it. No one's perfect. I, I think one thing that we maybe never had as a culture, but we've definitely lost as a culture, is the ability to realize that people make mistakes but you don't just reject them out of hand because they made a mistake because we're all imperfect. Absolutely. And, and we need to be able to get over the fragility. You know, if, if I say something in a, if I make some joke and, and somebody says to me, dude, that's racist. Why would you say that? There's that automatic response to be defensive. No, that I, I did not do a racist thing. I am not a racist person mm -hmm. uh, because racist is bad and I'm not bad. I'm good. Uh, I think though, again, it just returns to you need to listen and you need to think about it and understand that if I did a racist thing, look, I'm, I'm here telling you I have done racist things and I have said racist things in my life. I don't think there's many people who haven't. Right. But no, you're absolutely it's the ability to hear those those criticisms, take them, evaluate them, and try to change your behavior without slipping into all-out defense mode. And I think that's that's a, a badge of liberal culture that is a really big contrast with the conservative culture I grew up in. Is the ability to hear, listen, don't that that joke is racist, and think, yeah, it is. I'm sorry, I'm going to try not to tell that again. Instead of, what? No, I'm not a racist. I've got a black friend. And I, I'm grateful for the fact that I don't know people who would say something like that anymore, or at least not say it directly. They would infer, like they at least have the presence of mind and the self-awareness to know that you can't just come right out and say, but I'm not racist, I have a black friend. But they would basically try to show all the ways that they're not racist without actually saying those words. Well, wait, now that's usually the case, but I seem to recall a, a mutual friend of ours trying to defend why he should be able to use the N word at karaoke night against the view of everyone else in the room. So <laughs> I think that this is something where even, you know, people can dig in and people can take criticism really hard and they can become really defensive. And it's hard too to be patient with those people and understand you know, maybe they don't have the they don't have the utilities to not do that to not be that way right uh, so it's a, again it, it comes back to trying to uh, trying to listen but also to try to be understanding and patient with people because like you said none of us are perfect we all screw up all the time right and it's how we respond to that that I think is what what really defines our character so 
flipping back into your professional life, what, and I don't know if I've ever asked you this, why did you decide to become a lawyer? It was my second option. What um, was your first? Well, back in 2004, so get in your time machine for this one. <laughs> We're old, Mike. We're old. Uh, I'm glad that you put yourself in the old category along with me. Oh, Usually absolutely. I feel like I'm there alone. We're about the same age. Come yeah. on. Uh, but so 2004, I was uh, in college, about to finish, and I was working in uh, political campaigns. Um, specifically, I was working for the John Kerry campaign. Uh, I was doing volunteer work for him in Lexington. And I'd made some connections in the campaign, and my plan was that you, – you've seen West Wing, right? Yeah. I was going to be Josh Lyman. I, no, I was going to go work in the communications office if John Kerry won. Now, th- nobody promised me a job. I just knew in my head that if he won, that's where I would be. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> when he did not win, my plan B was to go to California and go to law school because it's my dad's profession and, and nowadays it's also my sister's. It's sort of the family business. So it was my backup plan when politics didn't work out. And is it something you're doing because it's the family business or is it something that you legitimately enjoy? I legitimately enjoy it. Uh, one thing that really makes it for me is that when people have problems – they are comfortable coming to me and knowing that I may not have the answer, but I'll know where to find the answer and doing things like wills for my friends and, you know, answering people's questions when people are panicking because they got a letter from their landlord and they don't know what to do. I love being the person who can find them the answer. So it's a very empowering thing for me. I I feel like the, the one guy at the party who read the inside of the top of the box and knows all the (laughs) rules of the game in every situation. Yeah, I can see how that would be pretty helpful. What do you do to keep people from asking you for legal advice all the time? To be honest with you, I don't. Uh, I don't police that. There have only been a handful of times where people have, in my view, uh, taken up more of my time than I felt comfortable giving. And I can draw those boundaries if I need to. But I love what I do, and I don't love it for the money. My favorite work I do is done pro bono. So uh, I really don't enforce much of a boundary there. Perhaps I I will in the future if it gets to be a problem. (laughs) I just feel like sometimes – it can get into a situation where you're like in the peanuts thing where it's like ask for advice, five cents or whatever it is. And, you know, there's just a long line of people like, oh, I have a legal question. I'm going to call Andrew or text Andrew or, you know, next time I see Andrew at a party, I'm going to ask him this question. Now, I can imagine that that can become a little annoying at times. Now, the, the only time I remember that I was legitimately annoyed was at my engagement party when a a new friend, somebody I had just met that evening, decided to lay out a very long, convoluted story and ask me for legal advice on it while I was trying to celebrate. Uh, <laughs> that's that's bad form. Bad form, indeed. But no, it, in, in general, I, I love it. And it's again, it's it's one of those things where I have the ability to do these things. I, I have the time. I I can give them those things and I can give them my attention. And especially for things that are so important, like making a will. I think everybody should have a will. If you don't have a will, come see me. I will give you a will. It'll be my <laughs> pleasure to do it uh, because it just, it saves your loved one so much time and hassle. So I, I'm ha- always happy to do those things. And I, I, I consider it a privilege to be able to, honestly, it's not a burden. See, you're so magnanimous. It's... Yeah. Now going back to detoxifying masculinity, what, trying to word this properly 
in terms of like learned behavior that needs to be unlearned, what what are you seeing as something that's really common? Well, uh, it's it's one that I suffer from as well, and I have never given it a name. Maybe I'll coin one now. It's premature woke syndrome. <laughs> it's it's when somebody is. And I, I hate to use this term right thinking, but I think we all know what you mean by that. Yeah. It's, a, it's somebody who has a lot of progressive ideas and they believe that because they have given the okay, yes, I am a progressive, I support equality, I support equal rights. Because they stand on that ground, they are officially woke and they are done doing work. I fall into this trap all the damn time. And sometimes it takes somebody pointing it out to you, an example of you acting in a bad way or in a toxic way for you to understand, well, maybe, maybe this isn't a destination. Maybe trying to be woke or trying to be compassionate, maybe this is a process and maybe you don't end this process, you know, get a merit badge and go on with your life. Maybe it's something you have to keep refreshing and keep working on. Uh, so I think being prematurely woke, that's a, a big challenge that a lot of men face. How do you call that out? I, well, you don't call it out. You call it in. You, you, you say to people, well, listen, it's great. For, I mean, you've got to validate people. You've got to say, listen, it's great that X, Y, Z. It's great that you feel this way. It's great that you agree that that there, that equality should be the starting point of this conversation. But then in the details, you know, when you're describing to me this argument you had with your girlfriend last week, it sounds like you were kind of out of line. You know, you, it sounds like maybe you weren't respecting her opinion as much as your own opinion. And you really want to call them in because the idea here isn't to cast people out and, you know, start shitting on them. Uh, sorry, I, we, we can swear, right? That's yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, it's not to go shit on them. It's to say to them, hey, 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 oh, back, back over here, back over here and kind of corral them, shepherd them, you know, and, and it's not, there's nobody in our group that is a paragon of woke masculinity. You're not going to find that. In fact, there's not even a leader of our group. There's five or six facilitators. We all do it as a community. And these conversations, the reason these are so important is we can all hold each other accountable and decide together where where the parameters are of how, how we should conduct ourselves towards women, towards each other, towards misbehaving men. <laughs> what are the parameters of how we want to do this? And it's something that we have to discuss together. And, and because of that, because there's no paragon. It means we're all open to suggestions. We're all open to criticism. As long as that criticism is meant constructively and meant with love. Do you get pushback on that ever? All the time. Yeah, all the time. How do you deal <laughs> with that? When I'm the pusher backer or when I'm the one being pushed back against? Either or both, <laughs> actually. Well, when, when I'm the one pushing back, really patience. And for me, and this is my biggest challenge – I need to stop talking and start listening. It's very hard for me to turn off this mouth of mine. Uh, <laughs> when, when I'm on the other side of it, when somebody else is, is giving a lot of pushback, I, I find that the most helpful thing is to try to use compassion and understand where they're coming from and give them some words of validation about where they're coming from. We, we've had, we had a, a, I, I can't, I mean, obviously I can't disclose any of our conversations sure. from the group, but we've had people in the past who have been through very challenging upbringings that have left them with some very deep seated feelings about gender roles that most of the group does not share. And 
often when we when we talk to them about the behavior or things that we find problematic, there will be some pushback saying, well, listen, if you grew up the way I grew up, you'd feel this way too. And I think it's important that you validate it and say, you're, you're not wrong. If I had the upbringing you're describing, I think I, I would not, I would not have come as far as you've come. You've done an incredible job just to be in this room right now doing what you're doing. Now, based on that, are you open to some feedback? And you'll, I, I find that most people respond to compassion very well. It's hard to get red in the face that somebody is paying you compliments. I guess the the trouble there is have it, is does that person actually understand that you are paying them a compliment and trying to help them? <laughs> it's, well, who knows what other people understand? All, all we can do is our best, our level best, and try to figure out what works and what doesn't work. We're not perfect, you know. <laughs> we're we're not even good. We're just improving. <laughs> I like this is it's so great that that you feel this way like it's just you know it goes back to you know you're so magnanimous Andrew <laughs> ah bullshit you you played board games with me you know that's not true well that's kind of a different <laughs> thing it's it's interesting i was just editing an episode yesterday in which me and the person that i interviewed who you've definitely met i don't know if you know them well but we're talking about just sort of that competitive instinct that kind of comes out and like part of you wants to suppress it, but the other part of you can't. And I don't like, I've not seen you in competition very many times. I mean, we've played like board games and stuff like that, but you're usually pretty chill. I need you to, I need you to air that part just so I can make Kelsey listen to it. <laughs> Ast- uh, there is asterisk a, there is from a the list- things that I've seen. <laughs> there is a list of board games Kelsey will not play with me. Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> are you like are you like a table flipper? Are you No, no, no. I'm just I'm uh, cutthroat competitive. I, I want to win at all costs. Doesn't matter how casual the game is. <laughs> huh. I see I've never noticed that about you. Unbelievable. Well <laughs> we need, see we need the quarantine to end so we can have more of these game nights. And... Yes. <laughs> and I can see that part of you. Very interesting. Like the only time I've seen you really like get into like anything competitive was I had a game night once and it was the same night as a final four game. It might have oh, not even geez. been. It was an NCAA tournament game. And you came decked out in like full regalia and no one could talk to you for like two hours. Because you were locked into that fucking game. It's important that you understand that the Commonwealth of Kentucky has no professional sports teams at the major (laughs) league level. What we have are our University of Kentucky Wildcats. And their men's basketball team is just the best program in the country. And there's there's really – I'll brook no disagreement on this point. So if someone from Duke or Georgetown – or Carolina is listening to this right now. There might be some, I might get some hate mail. Well, I mean, I still hate Christian Leitner and they can write all the letters they can. It's not going to improve their outside shot. But yeah, my, that, mag, my magnanimity ends. Yeah, yeah, that just, edge. I just, yeah, that was the only time I've ever been like, okay, he is taking this very seriously. <laughs> Uh, remember sports? Remember when we used to have sports? Yeah, to watch? I remember. I remember sports. It it's uh, it feels like such a long time ago. <laughs> see, sports is one. You know, we were talking a little bit before. Sports is one of those badges of masculinity that I really like and I really respect. And I, I hope that you know 
that masculinity doesn't die out because there's so much toxic masculinity. Uh, and sports culture, I think, is a, is a part of that. It's been used for really bad things as well. But I think that at the core, that frivolous competitive spirit of sports yes, is I think, really something that appeals to me. Yeah, I love competition. And I am also, depending on the sport or game, I, I'm like almost problematically competitive sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> as, no, I, I think I have seen this side of you. <laughs> as, as, as anyone who has seen me on a basketball court will attest to. But no, there's there's like a, a charge I get out of that. And I don't know if that's necessarily a masculine thing, although it's well, sort of pitched as a masculine thing. Well, I think that's the that's the heart of it. You know, one of the things that I've come to realize about masculinity and femininity are they're not inherent. Yeah, the, the differences between people are very, very, very small. The when we say masculine or we say feminine, we're talking about received culture. Right. You know, I, I learned growing up what it meant to be masculine and what it meant to be feminine, and some of those things are problematic, but most of them aren't. You know, masculinity to me means wood and leather and musk and sports and you know, drinking a, drinking a big frothy beer, you know, or, or really <laughs> fine whiskey, smoking a cigar. Those, those badges of masculinity, they're received. That, that's not inherently male things. And we have to be careful as we celebrate the parts of masculinity that deserve celebration about not, you know, not putting a sign on the clubhouse that says no girls allowed. Sure. These aren't exclusive to us. Sure. It doesn't mean that you can't enjoy this if you're not a man. It's just, these are the parts of received masculine culture that are that have value and maybe are worth preserving and opening them up to everybody. Right. Yeah. And there shouldn't be lines between who can do what because it's masculine versus who can do what if they're feminine. If you are, I mean, going back to those kind of old tropes, if you're, you know, a woman and you want to smoke a cigar and drink whiskey, you should feel, you should be able to feel free to do that. If you're a dude and you want to paint your toenails or paint your fingernails and, you know, enjoy whatever, like anyone should be, should feel privileged or feel open to do whatever it is they want to do without feeling like, okay, well, this is my gender. I, I should not be able to do that. No, absolutely. I, th I think you're right. And I've fallen into this trap a few times myself. I'll, I'll share one story on myself. It's not a very flattering one. Um, but a couple of years ago, I was talking to my dad. Now, my dad, who still lives in Lexington, Kentucky, he follows not just the the men's basketball team the way I do. He follows the women, the Lady Wildcats, right on. who are an out outstanding program, I, as I understand it. My dad was telling me, since I don't watch, that that they're they're really good this year. They're number two. They've got a real shot in the tournament. And I said the stupidest fucking thing. I said to him, that's really great. Maybe someday they'll be good enough to try out for the real team. Oh, yeah. And and <laughs> well and and so and obviously that was a stupid thing to say. It was a sexist thing to say. And at the same time, it it shows that there's some nuance in this. You can't just break down the the barriers completely because there there has to be some nuance. Right. The those two games are actually very different games, the women's basketball and the men's basketball. And it's easy to say, well, the men's team had beat the, the women's team every day of the week. If I were to get on the court with a women's basketball team, I would be slaughtered. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you would too because you're, the game you've trained for is a little bit different. Yeah. 
And I so, have certainly played basketball with women before and almost unilaterally gotten my ass handed to me. So, you know, I mean, it, there, there's definitely no less respect for a woman's team than there would be for a men's team in, in my book anyway. Right. And it's, it's just, there's just those differences. There's, there's, there's a lot of nuance to it. Right. And, and also, you know, kind of the conversation we're having now, the most productive times that we have in the detoxifying masculinity group are when people are sharing personal stories that make them vulnerable. When you're talking about stuff that you did wrong, when you're talking about bad behavior that was yours, um, it's really powerful because it, it sort of accomplishes several things at once. It doesn't just bring up the topic and kind of serve as a cautionary tale. It starts to normalize being able to fess up to mistakes without being defensive. And it, without, it humanizes you. Yeah, absolutely. It humanizes you and it also normalizes the process of self-critique. You know, well, it's one thing if, if I say to you, what you just said is sexist. It, it's really helpful for you hearing that if you know that I've also just told three stories in which I acted in a very sexist way. Right. Because then you understand I'm not calling you a bad person. I'm criticizing your behavior the same way I'll criticize my own. And I think that encouraging men to be able to own their own sexism is really important. And this isn't just for sexism. It's for racism. It's, uh, there, there's a lot of different ways that we prejudice ourselves and where we're very close-minded to criticism most of the time. And I think that's something we collectively have to work on. Yeah, homophobia, transphobia, you know, I could I could go on. Absolutely. So how how does all of this sort of play into your relationships? Uh, I'd like to think constructively. It's it's always very jarring to me to come into a meeting and kind of let my guard down and be able to share stories from my own life and open it up to other people's input and criticism. I think that some of the feedback I've gotten has made me a better communicator. Well, I'll share another uh, little snippet with you. As, as much as I try to work against being sexist, one thing that has been called to my attention multiple times over the past two years is that I have a tendency to talk over people, especially women. Really? And it's, it's those last two words that put me in a very defensive posture every time it was brought up. And my typical go-to response was, it's not because you're a woman. I talk over everybody. I'm a lawyer. It's what I do. Uh, and – that's very humorous and very disarming. And after hearing it three or four times and realizing every example that's being called to my attention, it's been a woman and usually a romantic partner. Hmm. In those cases, that's something I needed to think about and I needed to reflect on and try to work on. And it's not something I'm cured of. I still have this tendency to talk over people, especially women. I'm trying, though. I'm trying very hard. And I think that that is an example, though, where having these men around me to hold me accountable allowed me to see past my defensive reaction and recognize that maybe this is a problem. Maybe this is something I can be better at and I need to work on. So it, it certainly had a positive impact. How do you manage that like how do you like sort of retrain yourself to not talk over people exposure therapy just it's sometimes you just have to make yourself 
be quiet and listen. Be quiet and listen is one of the hardest skills in the world. It's amazing how far you can get in the world just by lending <laughs> a sympathetic ear and not running your mouth. It, there's not really a shortcut or a secret. You just do it. You know, you just if it's a behavior you need to stop, you just need to be aware of when you're in the times when you when you might exhibit that behavior and simply don't do it. Exercise your restraint. Exercise your self-control. And if you do it enough, it becomes easier. It's only hard the first couple of times. Sorry, I'm just thinking of a, a mutual person, a person that we both know that historically talks over people. And, uh, <laughs> I already, you didn't even have to say more. I already know who you're talking yes. about. <laughs> um, so you are engaged. I am engaged. And this will be your second marriage? If at first you don't succeed, my friend. <laughs> so how how do you feel about kind of going into, you know into this institution a second time. Oh, I wish you wouldn't phrase it that way because I have so <laughs> many problems with the institution of marriage. But no, I, I'm very excited. I, I've got a really great partnership. And you know, Kelsey and I are, are able to bring out each other's best sides. And we really fill in a lot of blanks for each other. My, my fiance is extraordinarily artistic and has an amazing aesthetic, which is something I've never had. And at the same time that they're teaching me how to do things like sew and paint and really bring style to my life, I'm able to, to help with, with other things. It, we're really, it's a really complimentary relationship, and I, I'm very enthusiastic. I think we've got a bright future. I love it. And I, I, for the record, and Kelsey knows this, I love your partner dearly. And the artisticness is, is something that I'm kind of in awe of. I mean, there are different ways, I guess, to be artistic. I mean, you're a writer, so that's certainly an expression of art. But the things that Kelsey comes up with, it's kind of like I'll look at something, you know, on, on social media. I'd be like, I don't understand this shit one bit, but this is cool. Yes, exactly. exactly. <laughs> okay, I'm not the I, only person that feels. No, I do not have a visual artistic bone in my body. Um, and Kelsey has got me painting on canvas. Now, this is one of the great things. If you're with somebody during quarantine who has different skill sets than you, this is the time. Embrace it. <laughs> Move into it. I, I, yesterday, we stayed up until three in the morning sewing masks and binging something on Netflix. <laughs> I, I assume that the sewing machine issue has been sorted Yes, the sewing machine issue, it was a false alarm. No new parts were needed. Oh, good. But, and, and, you know, because of the world we're living in just today, the oil that we thought we needed to repair the sewing machine arrived um, because Amazon is on a week-long delay for things. Mm -hmm. So we got the unnecessary machine oil, so we're prepared in case that ever does become Sure, sure. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, actually going back to the writing, so – you you have not actually written a book, have you? I've written a couple of books. I've not published any. Okay, that's where I was going. Writing is such a, a it's a discipline that requires just a certain. What am I trying to say here? What is it? What do you get out of of being a writer? Uh, endless joy. Uh, it, writing is one of my, I, I'm at my happiest when I'm writing and writing just for anything. It can be writing an email. Um, I love to express myself through written words. I, 
I feel that I'm much more articulate in print than I am in real life. Um, and one of the things that's been hard for me as a writer is recognizing that my strength is really in the short form. I'm very strong with narrative. I'm not as strong when I try to stretch and do novel length work. And uh, that's be because that is seen as the equivalent of being a writer. They say, well, I'm a writer. Okay, what books have you written? Well, I haven't mm. written a book. Oh, so you're not really a writer. Okay. <laughs> well, I've written about a hundred short stories and you know, I've got a blog full of years and years worth of, of personal writing, but I guess I'm not a writer because it doesn't fit into your box. Uh, you're you're I, a writer. Every year I do NaNoWriMo and that's a great exercise for me. Uh, if people don't know, it's a challenge to write a full length 50,000 word novel start to finish in the month of November. And I've always enjoyed it, especially because they give me a free T-shirt at the end when I do it. So You're just doing it for the T-shirts. Hey, six years running. It's a third of my wardrobe. Don't laugh. <laughs> I refuse to believe that you only have 18 T-shirts. You know, I think actually I might win that bet. I wear a lot of button-downs these days. The, the yeah. lawyer thing. They don't let you wear T-shirts. Yeah, but now you're home. Well, first, I mean – See, oh, you, you think I'm wearing a shirt right now. That's good. That's rich. I see. I, I've also have never – well, that's not true. I have seen you shirtless. I I assume that most people, when they are not working and they're at home kind of relaxing, they are like me wearing a T-shirt and not either a button-down shirt or no shirt at all. And also, I literally have like 100 T-shirts. <laughs> Well, you work in the music industry, and T-shirts proliferate in the music industry. Yes. So I think there's a little cause and effect there. What's been a, a bit of a challenge for me professionally is the courts are now starting to do video conferences over Skype, over Skype for Business, which mm -hmm. they decided was going to be the least convenient thing for all of us, so they're making us use it. And I don't know if you're aware of this. I have blue hair right now because the quarantine is a perfect time to tint one's hair. Yes. So I'm looking forward to the court conferences I have towards the end of next week in which I will be appearing in a suit from my living room with blue hair. <laughs> and clean shaven. You might not even recognize me. Well, I saw, I've seen you on, on camera within the last week. So the clean, the clean shaven thing is sort of jarring to me for sure. Because, I mean, I've known you now for almost five years and I don't recall you previously having been clean shaven. Um, I do it every, usually about once a year. I will do it very briefly, typically for a costume. I've gone as like tuxedo mask to Comic-Con and I'll shave for that. I shaved to be uh, Michael from The Good Place last year. But that's – I'm – I come from Ukrainian stock. I can grow a beard in three days. You may you may have blinked and missed it. I'm sure. Um, but but you know, I, I shaved in fact this morning. I, I'm very, very clean shaven and I'm kind of enjoying it. I might keep it around for a while. Interesting. I, I always feel like seeing you clean shaven would be kind of like seeing myself clean shaven. I you look good clean shaven. Hey, you. I've seen the pictures. Uh, not my thing. But yeah, that's got to be that's going to be interesting, you know. Got the suit happening with with blue hair. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's, it's funny that the so this is a, a really interesting one. This is a place where dis dismantling the patriarchy could really benefit men. Really, really benefit men. Let's get rid of suit culture. Can we yeah. decide collectively that this pandemic has shown us that putting a noose around your neck for stylistic reasons doesn't make much sense in the 21st century? 
I mean, what, do, what does a suit do? It conveys power. It, uh, it, it triggers people's, it, it triggers people's context from culture. Sure. That this is a person of authority. They're wearing a suit. They must be important. Sure. But realistically speaking, <laughs> I mean, it's like, it, to me, it's like having a college degree. Like there are dumb people out there with college degrees and there are smart people out there who never went to college. When So you want a practical reason? I'll give you a practical reason. When I'm wearing a suit and I go to court, I have 11 pockets on my body. 11 of them. How much stuff do you carry that you need 11 pockets for? Well, no, I, I, I don't. I never carry things I need 11 <laughs> pockets for. But it's the idea that if I were to suddenly acquire things, I would have a place to put them. <laughs> a pocket for snacks. Pocket for well, keys. you know, it's it's funny, but it's also it's such a devilishly real issue. One of the um, one thing Kelsey is working on today is sewing pockets into several outfits because clothing that's designed for women does not have pockets. Pockets. That or they'll, give a, they'll give you a pocket and the pocket is about big enough for a pack of Tic Tacs, <laughs> uh, not a modern smartphone. And in fact, when Kelsey was picking out a phone, one of the major considerations was, will it fit in my jeans pocket? And the answer was surprisingly, no, not for a lot of them. So my, you know, iPhone, whatever Max would not fit with, with many clothes designed for women. And why is that? Is there a good reason for that? I I know there isn't, it's rhetorical, but it's interesting that that is a humorous thing, but it's also a very real problem. That's crappy. Yeah. Like people need to just get with the times. <laughs> it, it doesn't make any sense to me. <laughs> so as far as your own unlearning, particularly in like recent days, recent years, whatever, as masculinity has evolved and as the conversation has amplified, what has Andrew Grossman had to sort of unlearn and relearn the most or what is Andrew Grossman struggling with the most aside from the talking over people thing? (laughs) Yeah. The talking over people thing is a big one. I think what, what I'm struggling with the most. So I very recently started dating someone who's non-binary. Okay. And that has created a, a series of small challenges. One of which is just with language. I'm a prolific talker and the filter between brain and mouth is sometimes unreliable. And I've had to catch myself making generalizations about men or women. In fact, three sentences ago or so, I I referred to clothing designed for women. And I I was very intentional with my words there because what I'm inclined to say is women's jeans. (laughs) Women's jeans don't have this. Girls' clothing is this way. And, And it occurs to me that I'm way too... I'm way too prone to generalize. And those, what, what is it about that gene that means a man can't wear it? If it fits you, you can wear it, you know? So, and not all people who were assigned female at birth are women. And not all people who were assigned men at, male at birth are men. And some people aren't men or women. And being able to kind of move beyond the generalizations is something, it's, it's been a struggle for me, but it's taken on a new urgency and a new tenor and a new focus now that I'm seeing somebody who identifies as neither man nor woman. Right. And, and so that's been, that's been my most recent week's challenge. And I feel like 
that experience is probably similar to what was I mentioning before? It's something that you have to progressively get better at as opposed to kind of learning everything at once. And I mean, your partner also has to be patient with you because I would imagine that you still slip up from time to time. 100%, 100%. Time to time, almost every other day. Now that maybe that, <laughs> I'm being a little harsh on myself. I, I'm doing okay. You know, it was a, uh, it was a, a sharp learning curve at the very beginning, but I, I think I'm beginning to get it. And it, it's definitely progressive, and it's not something I'm ever going to be there. You, you never you never arrive. <laughs> you just keep working. You just keep working, and you see improvement in yourself, and it becomes easier over time. Yeah, I mean, that circles back to the wokeness conversation we had, where it's a, it's a process. It's not a, a destination. Yeah, and so for me, what where I'm at right now with that, just to kind of give you insight into sort of my progression – when I know I'm about to discuss something gendered and I, I know that the sentence that's about to come out of my mouth is going to be about men or women or male or female, I'm running a second check right now to try to, to try to work on my language and make sure that I'm not saying things that are overly general and that I'm not lumping all people together or excluding people from what I'm saying. And what I'm hoping is as time goes on, that filter will become more and more a second nature. Mm. And by, by virtue of watching what I say now, I can build my own internal vocabulary so that I don't even have to think about it anymore. I, I trust myself to say the right things and say things in a way that, you know, it's the meaning's the same. That what I'm trying to convey in my head never changes. It's the words I'm using because I want to use non-oppressive language. And it's real easy to do that if you practice it. So I'm I'm still in practice mode. I'm not there yet. I still have to run through that filter and I'm very aware of it. But my hope is that as time goes on, it gets easier and easier. And who knows, you know, a couple of years from now, maybe we'll be dealing with an entirely different set of unlearnings. Mm-hmm. And this one will just be baked into the cake. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's amazing how quickly, even... I- even if it seems that progression happens slowly, it's quicker. It's slower than we want it to be, but quicker than we think it is. I'm really thankful that you're doing this and that you're keeping this going while dealing with this COVID quarantine. At least part of the inspiration for this podcast came from detoxifying masculinity. So I thank you for being a, a you know, a principal person in that group. And for keeping it going consistently over the past year and a half. And I, I, you know, again, when I decided that I wanted to do something like this, I was like, well, there's definitely a need for it. And I don't know that very many people are doing this. So let let me try to put something together so that, you know, it doesn't require 12 people to be in a room, whether in real life or virtually. But people can listen to other people having a conversation, and maybe that conversation will spark something that will get them thinking differently about one thing. You know, just sort of plant a seed. Yeah, yeah, I like that. Plant a seed. It's just having these conversations and normalizing these conversations, especially between self-identified men, you know? Here we are talking about feminism talking about gender roles. These aren't conversations that, that 
I grew up having with other men. Likewise. I, I, they're not conversations I grew up seeing men discuss. Men discussing feelings was unusual enough. Men discussing the nature of the patriarchy and what we as a society need to do to deconstruct it would have blown my, my little 18-year-old mind. <laughs> and, you know, here we are a couple decades later and we're, we're kind of starting the work and we're starting to see some good coming of it. And that's good, but it's not enough. You know, we have to keep doing it. And it, I'm, I'm hopeful that your podcast does check those boxes and that you get those conversations and plant those seeds. It's, it's all stuff that needs to be normalized in order for us as a society to progress. These conversations, however awkward or clunky or uncomfortable they may be to have, need to be had. Because I think the people that are not having these conversations are really doing themselves and the people around them a disservice. Yeah, I think that's right. And it's little things we do now can change the culture going forward. Because when you start with that premise that masculinity is just a bunch of received culture, the thing you've got to understand is the transmission is ongoing. And right now, we're not, we're no longer, you know, the, the very young people who are receiving the culture. We're the, the somewhat older people who are delivering the culture. Right. And so when I, I want people as they're first learning about what masculinity is to be seeing this, to be seeing these conversations and to be seeing something different from what we grew up with, because that's the only way that we're going to make progress collectively. You're absolutely right. So where, if people want to get in touch with Andrew Grossman, where do they find you? You can find me at andrewdgrossman.com, D as in David, literally. <laughs> I uh, was just about to ask. <laughs> andrewdgrossman.com is where I, where I blog. I can be found on Facebook. I think I'm the only Andrew Grossman in Queens, certainly the only redheaded Jewish Andrew Grossman in Queens. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I don't have that much more of a social media presence. I, I have a, an Insta account just so I can like my partner's various oh. posts because, again – not a not an artistic bone in my body. So. <laughs> you don't have to be artistic to be on Instagram. What? Oh yeah, you yeah you got a cat, so you. <laughs> you don't even need a cat, Andrew. Well, I, I have he's directly underfoot right now, and, and Kelsey <laughs> takes care of all that for me. I don't have to post Finn. Nah, Finn's, a, Finn's an internet celebrity. Find <laughs> you can find him more easily than you can find me. But I'm always happy to talk to people, and our men's group is on Facebook detoxifying masculinity nyc and if you search for us we're open to everyone everyone is welcome uh the motto which my co-facilitator jack came up with is if you're if you're man enough for you you're man enough for us there so go. there's no no tests at the door just come on in listen participate and hopefully you'll get something out of it and actually that brings me to like one last question so i've sort of been exploring the world of men's groups for a little bit. And there is a level of, I'm probably going to get shit for saying this. There is a level of pretension that I get from some of them. And it sort of makes me a little bit uncomfortable or hesitant to join. Because when you say pretension, what do you mean by that? Precious, like preciousness, like you know, people start talking about, like, chakras and, and you know, it's just kind of like all this sort of it, – it feels like it feels like psychobabble a little bit. 
Yeah, no. The conversation that you and I are having right now is very typical of the types of conversations we have in group. And now during COVID, there's been a lot more of individual check-ins and helping people, you know, just sort of process what they're feeling and going through. We're, we're providing support for each other in that way. But no, the level of pretension isn't really there. Uh, I don't think the word chakras has ever come up. Uh, <laughs> if it does, I will do my very best to be respectful and empathetic. But no, the, the, the conversations are much more practical. It, it's about what we're seeing in the world, what we're seeing in ourselves, and what we want to see, where we want to be. So it's it's much more practical. We're, we're not the Freud of men's groups. We're the, what's the opposite of Freud? We're the young? No, is that right? That's, we're the cognitive behavioral therapy, whatever that one is. <laughs> we're, we're that. We're, we, don't wanna, we don't need to understand all the... All, all the root causes. Are, we need to figure out what's here now and what do we do about it. So we try to keep it more practically focused. I'm sorry your experience has been other. Oh no, it's fine. Yeah. I, it's just kind of like I, I look at some of these things and I'm just like, all right, we need to we need to keep it real and not be it. And it shouldn't be a competition or or a a showcase for how evolved we are. You know, in in quotes. But, yeah, woke woke culture. That's a problem with woke culture. Is a lot of people just kind of parade around thinking that they're the messiah of wokeness, and you know they're there to give you their wisdom. N- none of us are there. I mean, n- there are no paragons in this group. Right. Uh, all of us have done very regrettable things. O- almost all of us have revealed those things to other group members and talked about them openly. And this is what allows us to work well together. Is we're leaders. We're leaderless. We're just a bunch of guys who are coming together and trying to be the best versions of ourselves. Andrew Grossman, folks, working like so many of us to be the best version of himself. Thanks, Andrew, for being a person I value a great deal. And thanks for taking the time to allow me to interview you. And thanks for coming with your entire honest self. You can find some of Andrew's writing at andrewdgrossman.com. And you can follow him on Twitter at andrew330. I should also mention that in between the time we recorded this interview and now, he and his partner Kelsey got married, so congratulations to them both. As stated at the top of the show, I, and by extension Detoxicity, can be reached via various means. Facebook.com slash DetoxPod. I'm on Twitter at TizMikeJoseph, Instagram at It'sMikeJoseph, and I can be emailed at DetoxPod at gmail.com. I'd love to hear feedback from you, ideas on topics to discuss, guest suggestions, or if you yourself would like to be a guest, please reach out. I am trying to promote a specific charity at the end of every show, as, and as I record this episode, many of us are reeling from the death of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. This puts our Supreme Court in a very precarious predicament with a presidential election barely six weeks away. I urge you to donate to the Democratic Party whenever and however possible, whether it's directly to the Biden-Harris campaign or to anyone currently in a state Senate race. ActBlue.com is a great resource for which to drill down and find campaigns to donate to. I also urge you to vote. Democrats lost the 2016 election largely because of voter apathy. We cannot let that happen again. Once again, please vote. And as always, I wish you continued health and safety. Thanks for supporting and listening to Detoxicity. I'm Mike Joseph, and I'll talk to you next week. Peace.